I would guess all of us at some point have had the experience of being disorientated. Often it can happen when we're away from home and you wake up in the morning and it takes just a few seconds to figure out where exactly you are. It seems unfamiliar. I remember an experience I had one summer. We were visiting Megan's family in the U.S. and I went running on a woodland trail that they had in the area. The trail went roughly in a big circle, or it was supposed to. But when I was on there, I completely lost my bearings. I couldn't find my way back out of it. The trees were pretty thick and I could find nothing that looked remotely like the place where I got into the thing. I wandered around there for ages as the day was getting hotter and hotter. I'd already drunk the water I brought with me. I was getting thirstier and more desperate all the time. I didn't quite start crying, but it was pretty close for a while. But then finally, the thing that got me out of there was I could hear eventually some cars in the distance. And I managed over brambles and everything else to work my way out to the road. And then very, very unusually for me, I figured out where I was in relation to Megan's parents' house. I was back to reality again. Those kind of experiences are not fun when we go through them. Experiences where we're perplexed and we're confused because we're not sure where we are and we're really not sure what's going on. One moment we can be confident and unruffled because we think we have our bearings, but all of a sudden things start to look unfamiliar or things take an unexpected turn for us. And it's not just a change in geography that can confuse us. Maybe that's the least of those worrying situations. That kind of thing can happen to us as Christians who are trying to live for God in our situation. Our experiences in life sometimes can leave us spiritually disorientated. How did this just happen in my life? What am I supposed to make of this turn of events? Completely unexpected. Well, this morning as we turn to 1 Kings again, we're going to see the prophet Elijah in a severe state of spiritual disorientation. And we'll also see how God works to reorientate Elijah, bringing him back to reality again. It's 1 Kings chapter 19. You'll find it on page 360 in the blue church Bibles or 555 in the larger print. I don't think this is just for Elijah. I think all of us can learn from Elijah's experience in this passage. But before we meet, read it, we need to remember what happened in chapter 18. Because that is key to understanding what, why Elijah becomes so disorientated in chapter 19. Last time in chapter 18, we saw God sending Elijah to confront King Ahab. Ahab and his wife Jezebel were totally committed to the god Baal. Now, they were keen on other gods as well, like Asherah, who was a kind of wife for Baal. But mainly, they were into Baal. And they were making Baal worship the official religion in Israel. They didn't go about that in a subtle way. Chapter 18 told us Jezebel was committed to killing off the Lord's prophets. 
But God sent Elijah into that hotbed of Baalism and Elijah had a spectacular victory. He set up a big contest on Mount Carmel against 450 prophets of Baal and in full view of the people of Israel, two things happened on Mount Carmel. First, the impotence of Baal was revealed to everyone. He was supposed to be the storm god. But he did not respond to those 450 prophets, despite their manic efforts to get his attention. And the second thing that was revealed on Mount Carmel was the power of Yahweh. We've noticed in recent weeks, Yahweh is the personal name of the God of the Bible. In our Bibles, it appears as the word Lord, all in capitals. And when Elijah prayed to the Lord on Mount Carmel, fire fell from heaven. It totally licked up the sacrifice on the altar and the altar itself and even the water in the trench around the altar. And shortly after the fire, God sent rain from heaven, ending the three-year drought in Israel. Surely that has to mean Baalism is over. Surely Ahab and Jezebel will give it up. Surely they will lead Israel back to the true living God, the God who actually has power. Well, apparently that was Elijah's expectation as he ran ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way back to Jezreel. And that's where we pick up now in chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me. Be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. 
But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. And go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also, anoint Jehu son of Nimshi king over Israel. And anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel-Maholah to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the twelfth pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. This is God's word. And as this passage opens, we find Elijah broken by the battle. The man we find in verses 1 to 5 is hard to recognize as the same man we saw in chapter 18. There, he was bold, he was confident, even to the point where he could taunt the 450 prophets of Baal as they did their song and dance act for their God. All the way through chapter 18, Elijah gave commands and people obeyed. Even King Ahab obeyed. But now, when Ahab gets home and tells Jezebel what happened, and when she sends Elijah a death threat, that's what she's doing in verse 2, when she says, by this time tomorrow I'll make you like one of the dead prophets of Baal. When Elijah receives that death threat, he doesn't argue, he doesn't fight back, he runs for his life, we're told. And he goes a long, long way. From here, Ahab's palace in Jezreel, down across the border into Judah, then right to the bottom of Judah, to a place called Beersheba. And that is pretty much the end of the line. So he lets his servant stay there in Beersheba, while Elijah himself goes a day further on, out into the wilderness. That's a very extreme reaction to Jezebel's death threat. What happened to the Elijah who was fearless in front of 450 prophets of Baal? 
And it gets even more extreme when Elijah decides to pray. Look at in the middle of verse 4. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. What's going on? How has this mighty, bold man of God got to this point? Well, the clue comes in what he says here to God. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. In other words, Lord, what happened on Mount Carmel didn't change anything. I thought it would end the battle against idol worship. I thought it would bring Ahab and Jezebel to their knees. I thought the opposition to you would melt away. After that great display of power. But Lord, it seems like nothing at all has changed. Elijah knows his history. He knows how things have gone for God's representatives in the past in Israel. He knows that Israel has been stubborn and rebellious from the time of Moses. Elijah knows that even the spectacular experience of the exodus from Egypt, even that didn't seem to cure Israel of rebellion and sin. And now it's hit Elijah like a bucket of cold water. Mount Carmel hasn't cured Israel either. Moses couldn't crack the opposition, and I haven't cracked it. I'm no better than my ancestor Moses. And all the others who tried to do what he tried to do. I give up. Elijah is broken by the battle. He's so severely disorientated, he can't see any way forward. And here is the root of Elijah's disorientation. Things have not gone as Elijah expected them to go. It is not that God has gone back on a promise. That is not what's knocked the wind out of Elijah. Elijah wants to give up because the results of Elijah's work have not been what Elijah expected them to be. So it's not that Elijah is a coward in any sense. It's not that he lacks commitment to the Lord. The issue is, Elijah thought Mount Carmel would end the battle, but it turns out the battle is still very much on. If you and I pause at this point and try to apply this to ourselves, we can ask ourselves, how many of my disappointments as a Christian come from my own expectations about how things should turn out? When I go through those times of disorientation, when I become confused about what exactly God is playing at, how much of that is simply because God didn't do what I expected Him to do? He didn't bring about the wonderful resolution I planned for the situation. He didn't zap my problem to smithereens the way I imagined He would. He didn't use my witnessing to bring the results I had hoped for. 
I had drawn up a great blueprint for God, but he went and ignored it. I know he must have ignored it, because if he'd taken the time to look at it, he'd have seen how great it was, and he would have gone with it. Very often, you and I become perplexed as Christians because of our own expectations. And often we're perplexed over the same issue that got to Elijah. The fact that our service for God doesn't seem to make a blind bit of difference. The battle seems just as hard as ever. The opposition seems as stubbornly resistant to the truth as ever. And it's tempting at this point to launch now into the biblical antidote to this kind of disappointment. It's tempting to look at some of the verses which tell us God never promised that things would be easy. He never promised the opposition would fall to their knees in repentance. There are plenty of places where the Bible says that. And maybe if you or I had been dealing with Elijah as he lies under the bush asking to die, maybe that is the approach we would have taken. It's your own fault, Elijah. You had the wrong expectations. You were sure God would do something he never promised to do. Maybe you and I would have said that to this disorientated prophet. But look again at what God does. Verse 5 tells us, Elijah fell asleep. Then in the middle of verse 5, all at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? This broken prophet does not find himself being whipped into shape by God. He finds himself cared for by God. Specifically, God does three things in verses 5 to 10. He refreshes Elijah with sleep and food. He takes Elijah to the mountain of God and he listens to Elijah. Now later, God will have plenty to say. But there is a definite order to the way God deals with Elijah. Before the teaching and the instruction, God just cares for him. And there is such patience. The angel comes not once, but twice with food and water. And the second time he comes, it seems God is going to turn Elijah's run into the wilderness into a meeting with God. There's no indication Elijah originally fled into the wilderness because God had told him to. That doesn't seem to be the case. But now, instead of sending Elijah back north straight away, the angel seems to be sending him further south. 
much further south to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, some of us may know Horeb by another name. It's more commonly known as Sinai. And the reason it's called the mountain of God is because it was there God met with Israel in the wilderness. Hundreds of years before this, after they escaped from Egypt, God provided food for Israel in the wilderness, and he spoke to them at Mount Sinai, the same mountain. Now, maybe Elijah saw that connection with history. Maybe he didn't see it. But it's hard for us to miss it as we look at this passage. In fact, very often in Scripture, the wilderness is the place God chooses to meet with his people. In the book of Hosea, God says, I will speak tenderly to my people in the wilderness. In the book of Revelation, the apostle John sees the people of God in the wilderness. And in the wilderness, John sees they are being taken care of by God. The situation where you and I are disorientated and perplexed and broken is where we receive God's tenderest care. Now, we might not realize it at the time, of course, but it is God who sustains us. It's God who provides us with the strength to keep going until we get finally to where he wants us to be. God sends his angel to sustain Elijah on the journey, and when Elijah gets finally to the mountain, God asks him a question in verse 9. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, there is no note in the margin of our Bible that tells us what tone God uses here. And so we might wonder, well, is God angry? Is he reproaching Elijah here? But if we follow the clues we've been given in the previous verses, I think we have to take this as a tender question from God. Remember, he sent his angel twice to feed Elijah. That does not indicate God is angry. One writer says, God is inviting Elijah to unburden his soul. And Elijah doesn't need to be asked twice. Verse 10, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Is this accurate from Elijah? Mostly, yes, it is. Now, it's true, we have heard in chapter 18 about a hundred prophets of the Lord hiding in caves. So, technically, Elijah is not the only one left. But, he is the only one who hasn't been hiding in a cave. So, functionally, he has been the only one opposing Ahab and Jezebel. He is isolated, and he is under a death sentence. What Elijah says is fairly accurate. We'll see in a moment, God 
doesn't correct him at all. Now, he does present a different perspective on the situation. But God seems to agree with Elijah about the details of the situation. And the key point to notice is how God listens to Elijah. When he asks Elijah, what are you doing here? It is not because God doesn't know. Remember, he's been tracking Elijah all the way. He was there on Mount Carmel too with Elijah. God asks the question so Elijah can unburden his soul. And he can do it knowing that he is heard by the living God. According to the Bible, that's one of the greatest truths about God's care for his people. He listens to us. The book of Exodus says the Israelites cried out to God in their slavery and God heard their groaning. In the Psalms, David says, the Lord turned to me and heard my cry. There are lots of other examples. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter invites us to cast all our anxiety on God because he cares for us. So in our own times of disorientation, the first thing to remember and grasp hold of is the fact that we are cared for by God. Our needs are known to him. And our prayers are heard by him. In our confusion and perplexity, he invites us to unburden ourselves to him. That's where we start. That is the first step out of our confusion and back again to reality. And there's more. Here at Horeb, God doesn't just say to Elijah, sit on my couch and tell me all your troubles, Elijah. God goes further. In the verses that follow, Elijah finds himself reorientated by God. Look at verse 11. After Elijah has poured out all of his frustration and confusion, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Long, long before this, when Israel met God on this mountain, there was fire and an earthquake. Back on Mount Carmel, there was fire. But here we're told very deliberately, and we're told it several times, the Lord was not in the fire or the earthquake or the powerful wind. Here, the main event is the gentle whisper. That's where God is present in this situation. The whisper is the evidence of God's arrival. That's what draws Elijah out of the cave. And the message seems to be this. 
Elijah, you experienced the fire on Mount Carmel. And maybe you thought, that was how I did all of my work. Maybe you thought I always came spectacularly and burnt stuff up. And so, Elijah, when the fire was over, you thought I'd finished. You thought I had done all that I could do. And because the enemy was still up for a fight, you got discouraged. Like I had done all I could and it wasn't enough. But God is showing Elijah and saying to Elijah, Elijah, there is more to me than fire and earthquakes. A lot of what I do is gentle and quiet. It's so gentle, you could easily miss it. God is saying, much of what I do is more like a whisper than an earthquake. What God seems to be doing here is increasing Elijah's expectations. He's not decreasing them. God is teaching Elijah not just to look for him in the big earth-shaking moments. Elijah needs to know God is at work just as much in the quiet moments. Those moments when we might think God is doing nothing at all. You and I need to make the same adjustment to our expectations. We need to realize there is more to our God than fire and earthquakes. Sure, all of us, I'm sure, would love to see a nationwide revival with people flocking to church, desperate to hear about Jesus. We'd all of us love to see a government that's supporting the Bible's morality today. Or even an opposition party that supported the Bible's morality. We'd settle for either, probably. We'd love to be in a cultural climate where Christians aren't made to feel like the enemies of progress. We'd love to see those kind of spectacular changes in our situation. And it's good for us to pray for those things. But what you and I must not do is think that because God isn't doing those big things at the moment, he's not doing anything at all. We need to see there is more to our God than fire and earthquakes. Through his Holy Spirit, he is working in our time and place. And maybe we're in danger of missing it because we're just looking for fire. In our disorientation, one of the ways God reorientates us to reality is by reminding us his work is often unspectacular. Maybe God isn't drawing hundreds of people to himself here in Pelsall, but he is drawing people. Maybe God isn't doing what you wanted him to do in your situation, but he is doing something in your situation. And here in our passage, having made that point to Elijah, now God shows him more. 
First, God asks Elijah exactly the same question as before in verse 13. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives exactly the same answer as before. I have been very zealous, and so on. Word for word, what he already said back in verse 10. In other words, okay, I accept that you can work in quiet ways, Lord. So then, what quiet ways have you got in mind for my own nightmare situation? And God responds by showing Elijah that his work is wide and deep. Elijah wanted it to be all settled on Mount Carmel. Just get it over and done with. But God says, I'm working to a long-term plan, Elijah. And I'm still going to be working at that plan after you've gone. Part of your role, Elijah, is to prepare the way for the work that others will do. We see that as God mentions Hazael of Aram and Jehu of Israel. They'll actually come to the fore after Elijah is gone from the picture. And in the meantime, Elijah is to anoint his own successor as prophet, Elisha, son of Shaphat, just to keep it confusing for us. And while it might be true that Elijah has been the only one sticking his head above the parapet for the Lord, God mentions just in passing in verse 18, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. God says, you are certainly not alone, Elijah, despite what you think in your darker moments. And God says, you're not the only string in my bow, Elijah. I have a couple of kings lined up that I'm going to be using in the years ahead. And a couple of different nations. And I have another prophet who's going to take over from you. One writer says, Elijah must be content with being part of the plan and not the plan itself. Elijah wanted God to fix all of the problems through him in his lifetime. But God's work stretches way, way beyond Elijah. And it stretches way beyond you and me. We have such a very limited insight into things. In fact, you and I can't even see as far ahead as this afternoon. We really don't know what will have gone on by 4 p.m. today. But God's insight is much, much wider than ours. And his plans are much wider too. Coming to grips with that truth is one of the things that helps to calm our confusion. It helps to reorientate us to reality. God is working on a much bigger canvas than we are. He sees the length and the breadth of it. God is taking into account things that you and I cannot take account of because we have no idea of them. God's plan is wide and it's also deep. God has spoken about kings and nations, but now he lets Elijah experience some of the depth of his work 
in one individual life. Look down to verse 19. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah said. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Before this, God showed Elijah how his plans stretched wide to Israel and even to nations outside of Israel. But here, Elijah sees how God has been working deeply in the life of this young farmer, Elisha. It seems Elisha comes from a reasonably wealthy family. That's indicated by the 12 yoke of oxen he has. And it seems too, Elisha would have been taken by surprise when Elijah walked up and threw his cloak around him. That was a symbolic way of anointing him to be a prophet, wrapping him in a prophet's robe. But even if it was a surprise, such is the work that God has already done in Elisha's life that he doesn't hesitate. He kills his oxen and he burns his plowing equipment. That's what we would call burning your bridges in a pretty drastic way. He is leaving the farm for good. Possibly chased out of there by his dad. In verse 20, it's a bit cryptic when Elijah says, what have I done to you? The sense seems to be, of course you can go back and say your goodbyes. Just remember what I have done to you and what it means. You're going to be a prophet. And after the goodbyes, Elisha then follows Elijah as his apprentice. It's going to be a while before Elisha steps forward into the limelight. But God has shown Elijah that he has the ability to work deeply in the lives of individual people. He worked to prepare Elisha for the day Elijah would show up on the farm. And God does the same today. Of course, you and I cannot see the deep work that's going on. But God is preparing men and women and children for the day when he calls them. Maybe through you. Maybe through an invitation they're given. An unexpected conversation. And in our own difficult situations, often we do not see what God is doing. The deep things that he's accomplishing. When we meet Elijah again in 1 Kings, we meet a man who has been reorientated by God. He's no longer asking to die. He has experienced God's care. He's been reassured that God is always at work. When we meet Elijah again, he has been brought back to the reality of God's goodness and wisdom and power. And as you and I reflect ourselves on this passage, I hope that a bit of the same happens for us. 
I hope that our own expectations are corrected. I hope they are made that bit bigger today. As we realize that our God works in fires and earthquakes and in whispers. I hope that we leave here more assured of God's care. His ability to refresh us for the journey. His readiness to listen as we unburden our souls to him. And if you're not seeing God work in spectacular ways, I hope you can see that he is working. Maybe in quiet ways, but certainly not in limited ways. His Holy Spirit is always at work. And his work is wide and deep. And his work goes on here. In these moments, as we sit together listening to his word. And so before we sing, we're going to take just some time to be quiet. And we can respond to God individually. Maybe asking him to give, it, give us our bearings again. To renew our confidence in him. To remind us he is working in our own situation. Even if we can't see it. So let's just have that moment of quietness before we sing.